0: May God's blessings keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let the others do for you. May you grow up to be righteous. May you grow up to be The Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files—a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at Slashfilm.com and the host of the Slashfilm Cast. And joining me today, he is the man who played Captain of the Guard in the 1987 film Spaceballs. Stephen
1: Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Hey, man, now you're talking. Exactly. Captain of the Guard. I appreciate that. We're we're Uh, ramping up.
0: We're ramping up to to better and better roles as the podcast progresses.
1: I really love this. Yeah, Captain of the Guard was very exciting because I think, as the story goes, Franklin Jella was supposed to play that part. And, uh, And then for some reason he backed out or or he didn't want to do it. And, And Bill Pullman and I were doing a play together. And you remember Bill Pullman was the star of that. So we invited Mel Brooks to come see the play Barabbas we were doing at the Los Angeles Theater Center. And Mel Brooks asked me if I would come and audition for Captain of the Guard. So I auditioned for the part. I eventually got it. I was thrilled And we'll fade out on that moment and we'll fade into a moment some many, many years later where Frank Langella and I were both nominated for a Tony Award for Best Featured Performance in a Play on Broadway in 2002. And I came up to Frank and I said, Frank, I have to ask you a question. Uh, Why did you pull out of Spaceballs years ago? Because that's how I really kind of got kind of a start in a way. That was kind of one of my first big movies. And Frank Langella looked at me like I kind of had hit him in the head with a two by four. His eyes kind of crossed just a little bit. It could have been that or the vodka gimlets. And he looked at me and just said, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) And I said I said, Frank, you were playing Captain of the Guard and and Mel Brooks, you know, wrote the part for you and then you you draw that Is not true. That is not true. And and I said, "But Frank, Frank, I've lived with this assumption for years." And he goes, "Let's just not talk about it now. I don't want to come to blows." And I thought, "Oh my God! No, okay, we won't come to blows." And that was the only conversation I had with Frank during that Tony season. He, by the way, won the Tony Award.
0: Gotcha. Well, as I've said in the past, Stephen Frank Langella's loss is our
1: gain. And, uh, that's, uh, you, that's, you know, in fact, I have that minted on a magic coin I keep in my <laughs> pocket. And, Frank's uh, loss is uh, my you, gain. You immortalized
0: Captain of the Guard <laughs> in Spaceballs. So there you go. Um, you know, Stephen, uh, we talk about movies a lot. I was watching a movie the other day called The Truman Show, which is directed by Peter Weir it stars Jim Carrey. Mm. And uh, about halfway through the film, the Jim Carrey character goes up to Natasha McElhone, Uh, and notices a button that she's wearing on her jacket, uh, and it reads, how is it all going to end? And uh, he says, you know, I was kind of wondering that myself. And you know, Stephen, I was thinking about this podcast, and I was thinking to myself, I wonder how is it all going to end? And today is the season finale of The Topolowski Files Season 1. Now, people have seen this. In the sort of title of the episode, most likely. And they're probably freaking out. They're like, oh my gosh, is the Tobolowsky Files coming to an end? Well, <laughs> is it, Steven? Yes! No! <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, that was, no. no. Way to, Absolutely! Way to, way to joke around at the moment that you were not supposed no. to joke around at.
1: No, 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 no. <laughs> it's, uh, I should just mention that I wanted to bring this arc of stories to kind of a conclusion. I I have a big writing project uh, that's come up. And a lot of people don't realize, uh, in in fact, I got an email this week of somebody saying, could you let us in on the process of what it's like working on the Tobolowski files? And if you saw the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre... The scene at the end of the movie, the 25-minute chase scene where the girl is running from Leatherface and he's got the chainsaw, and you always hear it coming. That's what it's like working on the Tobolowski files. I don't, it's like I,
0: a, I don't know if I agree with that analogy. I think it's more like the first uh, Saw movie where these two people are trapped in a room and torture each other until one of them ends up dying.
1: Yeah. Well, in my analogy, though, David, you're Leatherface. And, and I am <laughs> And I like that. I like that. I like that analogy. It holds true. So, so I feel that there's no real way I can guarantee being able to record the new season of Tubalaski Files. And but for people not to worry, I've already written the first two podcasts of season two, and I'm starting on number three. So we will come back, and we. I talked to you about this, David. I think it's safe to say near the beginning of May.
0: Yes. The first
1: Friday of May, which I believe is May 7th. However, however, there is one small little bonus in that uh, as part of my new writing project – we may have a bonus that won't be a real. It's kind of like the Tobolowski files. It is a story I have written, but I didn't really write it as part of the Tobolowski Files stories. But we we could record that and put that out. Yeah, so uh, there they should be a bonus episode.
0: Uh, it should be a bonus episode next week, and then the Tobolowski files will return for season two uh, on May seventh. So that's the current plan right now. Uh, that's right, and so you have that to look forward to. so the Tobolowski files is not over yet. Uh, all the people trying to get us to stop have not succeeded. And we will we will continue uh, recording and preserving Stephen's life for posterity. So. Yeah, thank you. So Stephen, how is this story arc going to end? I am actually very curious.
1: Yeah, I was very curious too, because as I was coming, a lot of times you think, well, what is the story that I've been telling? And I didn't even really quite know. And I thought about I thought about a trip Uh, I did very recently, I I went back to Dallas to visit my dad. Uh, My mom now has passed away about three years ago. My dad's almost blind, and he said if there was anything I wanted to keep, I should look around because he couldn't help me find anything. So I went on a treasure hunt, and I found the dinosaur I made from clay in first grade. It It was kind of a brontosaurus with a thyroid condition. I found a volume of the complete works of Shakespeare I got as a gift from a girlfriend my senior year in high school I found a book on werewolves (laughs) that I bought when Beth and I lived in the flea apartment on McFarland And wow, you know, that was about 33 years ago Hmm. I found photo albums I made in college where I discovered some pictures that I've used in these very podcasts I found speech tournament awards that my mom kept from me for me from my debate years in high school, reviews of every play I was ever in. I was thrilled with every discovery and heartbroken that had been so long since I'd seen them or even thought about them. You know, it's never the photo. It's remembering that moment. That moment of feeling the cascade of time pushing you forward and the moment when you say to your mom or dad or your girlfriend or your sister holding the family cat, Hold it right there Well, we no longer lived in our childhood home But I still slept on my childhood bed for some reason This is the bed I've had since I was 14 Now, it's no longer had the necessary structural integrity you need for a night's sleep. It would either tilt to the right or the left, depending where your weight was distributed. So there was no rest to be had on this bed. But there was a certain sense of pride in the morning that you rode the balance point, like a kid standing on the middle of a teeter-totter. You know, they always advertise that these mattresses should be able to last a lifetime. So I guess I'm putting them to the test. Well, my first night home on this trip, I was determined to look at my art history notes from college that mom had kept for me. And I discovered that my little bed had no sheets. Dad had gone to sleep, so I was on another hunt of far lower expectations. So I checked a closet in the hallway that seemed like it could be the final resting place for any number of things, including sheets and blankets. It was I also found some big trophies I had won for debate in high school on the floor. I found the pillows my mother said she had gotten from her mother, who brought them from Europe. I found the green blanket my brother Paul always used to say was his favorite when he was a child. It was also nothing and also precious. And then I paused. I found my sheets, I lifted them up from the top shelf, and there, underneath the sheets. Was the huge white family Bible That I bought when I played Jesus and God's Bell The one I had taken to Illinois 30 years ago I hadn't seen it or thought about it since If you recall from those episodes I used it to hold up the window in my apartment That Beth and I lived in on Green Street I know it sounds disrespectful and it probably was But the fresh air was important and was valued Especially on a very muggy Indian summer day I remember on slow mornings, out of boredom I would open that Bible up at random And see if there was anything that made sense to me Ah, I was always taken with the stories of Joseph And here they were again I have no idea how this Bible ended up under the sheets In her final years, Mom was losing more and more of her memory Due to Alzheimer's If you've experienced that in your family, you know. If you haven't, it can tear you to pieces. She could have put it up there, forgotten about it. But I took that Bible to bed with me that night instead of my art history notes. I wanted to look it over for traces of memory more than insight. And I read another one of those perplexing passages in the story of Joseph This was the story that fascinated me for years And my apologies that my last installment on Joseph was three decades ago So we're at the end of the Joseph story now And a brief recap As a boy, Joseph was thrown into a pit, left for dead, sold into slavery Sent to a prison in Egypt, became a psychic, was lost, was found, was taken to Pharaoh, became famous and powerful as a seer. And his family is starving and comes to Egypt looking for food. They don't recognize Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. He messes with their heads, not knowing what he's going to do. And eventually, he breaks down into tears, embraces his family, telling them not to punish themselves for the way they treated him. That his hardships have placed him here in Egypt In a position of power where he could save them And be an instrument of astonishing deliverance Now that's where we left off In Illinois (laughs) many years ago Now Joseph gives his brother a bounty of food to take back home And this is where we come up to one of those strange moments in the Bible In his final bit of advice to his brothers What does he say? Out of everything he could say, it's such a dramatic and life-saving juncture. His final words are, go, and don't fight on the road. For a second, it sounds like he's talking to children in the backseat of a station wagon on a car trip. And it's not just me who thought that it seems like an odd thing to say to his brothers who he hadn't seen in almost 20 years. And after his triumph over adversity and reaching out to save them at a time of famine, don't fight on the road? This comment has been examined by dozens of scholars for the last 2,000 years What does he mean? There are several interpretations Rashi, the great French rabbi and commentator in the 11th century Said that the word fight really meant to be agitated or to be fearful Because his brothers had so many riches and food with them, if they acted nervous in any way, it could draw the attention of thieves. Joseph was warning them to act casually on the way back home. Another commentator suggested that it was a long trip, and he was telling his brothers not to be afraid, that there was a sort of divine protection watching over them. Another suggested that Joseph wanted to warn his brothers not to continue to blame themselves for what they had done to him in the past Because they wouldn't pay attention to the dangers and demands that lay in front of them in the present These are all very good, very interesting But there is another one I became enamored with from a Hasidic rabbi in the late 18th century And he said, I love this, that the line was mistranslated You see, in Hebrew, the meaning of the words are changed by letters that are added either to the beginning or the end of that word. Here we have the word in Hebrew, derech, which means road. If you add a B in front of it, baderech, you have something that could be translated as on the road. Don't fight on the road. However, it doesn't have to mean that. On occasion, a B... At the beginning of a word Can also mean with So now the sentence would read Don't fight with the road Strange And one further change Derek doesn't have to even mean road It could also mean path Or way Now the meaning is changed From don't fight on the road To something like Don't argue with the path Maybe Joseph Wasn't giving advice how to act on the journey Perhaps he was describing the journey itself Not travel tips But a far more sweeping vision of how to live your life Don't fight with the path In my life and the lives of those I've loved The path is something that could never be traced It has never been predictable It has never been easy But in a strange way It's always been planned for Here is a fairy tale But it's for real It is the real story of the path It happened in 1973 It was my final year at SMU And one of the irascible characters of our school Was the rough, gruff, Mississippi-born, Army-trained, shaggy, blonde-haired graduate student Lanny Flaherty Who suddenly announced he was leaving us Even though he had a lot of success at SMU He landed a lot of great parts He wrote great term papers on Anton Chekhov But he had had enough of school And was headed off to New York City To take a shot at being what he wanted to be An actor on Broadway And you know, as I think back on it It could have been Lanny That was the first person we knew That broke the mold and blazed his own trail In fact, if I were to play that Where and when game of where and when You learn life's lessons and get permissions For the choices we make It could have been Lanny's decision To leave school that led me To my decision to leave Illinois Two years later without finishing the program Like Everything Lanny did It happened fast He was packing up and he was going to be leaving in a couple weeks It was the talk of the entire drama department Lanny announced that there would be a Goodbye, let's help me clean up my apartment party Next Saturday night The entire drama school showed up People came bearing beer and marijuana The music was cranked up on the stereo And we started packing up the yellow Datsun outside With all of Lanny's worldly belongings We emptied out the fridge We scrubbed the bathroom we hauled out and swept up and threw away And as the sun began to rise We began to cry Everyone lined up that dawn To kiss and hug Lanny goodbye And it was a powerful scene And even this big, gruff, bare of a man's cheek Started flushing As the waves of love and loss washed over him We walked down to the street Lanny squeezed his way <laughs> Into the front seat of that Dodson. He turned to us and waved in that beautiful light of the Texas dawn Waved his final farewell My former roommate, Jim McClure, put his arm around my shoulder as we watched Lanny go And even Jimmy was a little teary as he said, he's the first I looked over to Jim as he continued He said, we're crying now, but it's something we're all going to have to do someday If you don't leave, it means you never started it was a double whammy for me Jim's words with the image of Lanny's dots and rounding the corner He was gone That was it He was on his way to another life And we look back to the now empty apartment Waiting for its next tenant Fade out Fade in A week later, I'm walking across the campus to a literature class And I've frozen my tracks There was Lanny Flaherty striding out of the student center as big as life. Lanny was back. Apparently, he got to New York and made the determination that, hell, he wasn't going to stay there. (laughs) And he turned around and came home. Now, he was looking for another apartment. And he'd let us know when he was going to have a move-in, let's clean up my place party. But the story doesn't end there. Two weeks after Lanny's return, James Earl Jones and company came to use space at SMU To rehearse a Broadway-bound production of Of Mice and Men All of us actors were hoping to catch sight of the man we consider to be One of the great actors of the world right here on campus The director of Of Mice and Men, Ed Sharon, spoke to us at conference hour And he caught sight of Lanny Flaherty Lanny's crusty southern character struck Ed as perfect for the play He asked Lanny to read for him Lanny did and was cast immediately Lo and behold, Lanny Flaherty was back in his dots and On his way back to New York This time working as an actor on Broadway And as in all good fairy stories Lanny pretty much lived happily ever after As an actor he performed in a string of Broadway shows And as a writer He wrote the last play the great Henry Fonda performed. I was struck now by the new irony in Jim McClure's observation. If you don't leave, it means you never started. As perplexing as the Bible is, I found nothing can outdo science when it comes to coming up with things that make you redefine the meaning of the word what? I have always found books on science are great to take on a movie shoot. See, on a set, you never know how long you're going to have to sit in your trailer, and there's nothing worse than getting pulled away from a great novel at the wrong time. It's best if you have something that reads in short bursts, like Charles Dickens. Who was paid to write in tiny little chapters or books on physics? See, with Charles Dickens, you have great characters, great stories, but he was paid to write in installments, so there's always a good stopping place. With physics books, there's never really a good starting place. So all you have to do is read a couple of sentences before you're brought to a complete standstill. Nice and quick. Here's one of my favorites In quantum physics, There's a particle called a tachyon The tachyon theoretically travels faster than the speed of light Meaning it can arrive somewhere before it has left Right, pause for the audience to absorb this idea But there's more If the principle of special relativity is true That to the observer nothing travels faster than the speed of light It means for the tachyon to exist It must travel back into the past in some manner to appear to comply with natural laws Now you can think about this for days and days and not figure it out I've been thinking about it for years And I've come up with the notion that the tachyon may exist around us every day In the form of memory That in a very non-linear way You travel back into the past Even though you're actually traveling forward at the same time In a real sense You have arrived before you have left It's also a heartening principle For those of us who appear to be going nowhere in our lives Had I had known about the tachyon back then I would have imagined that in some theoretical universe Beth and I had arrived at a new destination Even though to the untutored eye It looked like we were just starting all over again She came out to Los Angeles After doing The Lincoln Show in Illinois After our one year in graduate school We moved into a real house with a real backyard And I tried to grow real zucchini I had a job doing children's theater With Twelfth Night Repertory Company And Beth came back to the same place she was in Dallas No real job that suited her But instead of working as a waitress, she was now working as a temp in a dog food plant Here was the difference And it was a slender thing But now she had had a revelation The revelation from the evening we read Claudia Riley's play back in Illinois The revelation that she would write And from that idea, Beth wrote She was writing a screenplay called The Moonwatcher In which she included her experiences over the last summer at The Lincoln Show She still carried around those tattered spiral notebooks Where she jotted down ideas and drew pictures of witches on broomsticks We had several friends from Dallas who were also actors And we decided we should band together and do plays to keep our souls alive Or, if that failed... We should get together, get stoned, drink beer, eat barbecue, and talk about banding together to do plays to keep our souls alive Actually, we usually settle for option two Enter Fred Bailey Bailey was a fellow SMU alum He also provided something that every group of actors always needs and usually forgets A play (laughs) Yeah, hello He was a writer He had all of the tools to turn that drunken potential energy into a kinetic production. And it turned out to be the catalyst we needed. Bailey wrote funny, exciting plays, and he was a great director. He also had something we could only dream of, notoriety. Fred had won the very prestigious Actors Theater of Louisville Great American Play Contest with his Vietnam-era play, The Bridgehead. This almost guaranteed that main newspapers in Los Angeles would review our productions, and if we got lucky with a show, it could mean casting directors and agents would come to see us, and we would be on the road to having a real career. There was also something intangible Fred brought to our group, the energy of the possible By doing these plays, we felt like anything could happen, even if we only had a handful of people in the audience. It was the opposite of Twitter psychology, that the more followers you have, the more validity you have. We had validity because we had something to say, and that something was provided by Bailey. We rehearsed in backyards. We rehearsed in barns. We all chipped in money to make the sets, the costumes, and the theater rental happen. But in the end, the most powerful contribution we made was with our time A brief digression When I was addicted to cocaine several years from this point in history A dealer told me something very important He said addiction is not just made up of the time you spend getting high It's also made up of the time you spend thinking about drugs Earning money to buy drugs and driving around trying to find drugs Now this man was certainly not a friend of mine But that night in the alley behind a restaurant He made me see the world differently Our life isn't necessarily measured by what we accumulate But how we spend our time And there's a pressure to only value achievement By focusing on the finish line I often think more praise should be bestowed on those Who make sure we're starting at the right place And that was Fred Bailey Bailey gave us an amazing gift, even though we didn't value it enough at the time. He took us to a true starting line where everything we wanted in our past and everything we hoped for in our future came together in one moment. It focused our energy in such a way that the topics of our weekend party weren't about how we couldn't get agents, how we didn't have careers, but what our next show would be. It was an environment of excitement. And it was during this highly charged period that Beth was hit by what appeared to be a personal tragedy Her grandfather in Mississippi got lost in the woods Beth got a phone call, burst into tears Everyone expected the worst He was an old man and the first search parties had turned up nothing It all turned out well He was found and he even joked about it But it was after this that Beth's spiral notebooks came out again with a purpose After a few months of taking notes, Beth started writing a play She pulled out her old electric typewriter and started turning pages of scribbles into characters and dialogue The process didn't call a lot of attention to itself Because our little group was so focused on the creative rather than the game of whether any enterprise would be successful Everybody was writing something After a few days Beth had a stack of typed pages On her dining room table She still hadn't finished And she still didn't have a title But she asked me if I could read it To see if it was a complete Tomein wreck As I learned my lesson with Am I Blue I did not take Beth's Trash talking too seriously I sat in the rocking chair That evening and began to read Nothing I had experienced with Am I Blue could have prepared me for this Where Am I Blue was small and quirky This play was massive Beth's offbeat humor had turned into a voice that was startling It could be funny and then be tragic, often within the same line It had the feel of a simple play about three sisters But in that simplicity, Beth revealed the universe Once again, I had the feeling I was sitting in the presence of a greatness created by Beth She handed me the sheets as she finished typing We reached the end together All I could do was hold her and cry She asked me if I liked it I told her it was great, simply great She asked me if I thought it was good enough for us to do as a production with our group. I said, are you kidding? This is one of the best plays ever written. This play is going to be on Broadway. A few days later, we had a read-through in our living room with our friends. The play had an amazing effect on this group of innocent bystanders. I don't think I ever remember hearing so much collective laughter, followed by the stunned silence and then tears in my life. Afterwards it was nuclear Everyone was so excited The only talk was when could we start rehearsals And the play also needed a name Beth called it Old Granddaddy's Dying Which I thought lacked some curb appeal Sharon Ulrich, one of our troops Said that an SMU graduate, Jack Hefner Had success with his play Vanities And maybe we could think of some sort of snappy one-word title And Sharon came up with the name Crimes Everybody liked that, but it still didn't fit the grandness of the play I came up with Crimes of Passion And it stuck We started rehearsal Beth was going to play Babe I was playing Barnett Sharon Ulrich, who was playing Meg Was the only person in our group who actually had an agent Richard Bauman. She gave the play to him to read He didn't, but he kept it on his desk His friend was a literary agent in New York and Richard's custom was that whenever his friend came to town, he would hand him a pile of scripts to read on the long flight back. As it happened, the top script on the pile was Crimes of Passion. One afternoon, we got a call from a strange man named Gilbert from Kennedy International Airport. He wanted to talk to Beth. He asked her if he could help her with her play. Beth looked over at me with huge eyes and shrugged her shoulders and said, sure, At the time, none of us knew that Gilbert Parker was one of the biggest literary agents in the country He had worked at the Curtis Brown Agency where he dealt with Tennessee Williams and Lillian Hellman And now he was with William Morris where he represented the top playwrights on Broadway Gilbert mentioned that the name of the play would have to be changed Because Ken Russell was directing a movie called Crimes of Passion And he didn't want the two to be confused I suggested to Beth we could call it Crimes of the Heart, which was pretty much the same as Crimes of Passion. She liked the sound of it, and that became title number four. This was the beginning of a road that led Beth, like Fred Bailey, to winning the Great American Play Contest in Louisville. And it was a good news, bad news situation for us. Yeah, the Los Angeles production had to be canceled, but the good news was that now our little group could boast having two of the best playwrights in America. The road led to a limited off Broadway run at the Manhattan Theater Club, where Beth enjoyed moderate success until Gilbert called up one day and told her she was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. We celebrated for about a week straight. This was amazing. We couldn't believe where the road had led. In retrospect, You could trace not getting cast at SMU Led to taking a playwriting class Waitressing at P P. Gonzalez's Mexican restaurant Led to leaving Texas and going to Illinois That led to being inspired by Claudia Riley We left Illinois and came to Los Angeles And the words of Jim McClure came back again If you don't leave, it means you never started Beth won the Pulitzer Prize for Crimes of the Heart It opened on Broadway, it ran for over a year It was made into a movie Beth was nominated for a Tony and an Academy Award for writing But to me, one of the sweetest memories I have of this amazing tale of success Is that out of nowhere, opening night on Broadway Claudia Riley drove from Illinois to New York To see the play of her old classmate And to tell you the truth, I don't think Claudia ever knew the influence she had on Beth at intermission opening night, Claudia ran to congratulate Beth. They screamed and hugged, and Claudia looked like Claudia. She was dressed in black with her beret and her boots, her sharply cut blonde hair, smoking cigarettes, and, and, and Beth looked like Beth in her ragamuffinish attire. Several women came up and pushed Beth away to talk to Claudia because Claudia looked like a Broadway playwright. One woman said to Beth, Excuse us, honey. We know the Henleys from Mississippi They surrounded Claudia And started heaping praise on her for her play Claudia smiled and nodded Taking it all in And then she said I'm just letting you keep talking So I could watch your faces when I tell you what you just did The road eventually led to many lucrative contracts One of which was writing the novelization of Crimes of the Heart Which is the book form of the movie Beth was writing another play at the time and didn't want the job and asked Gilbert if she could offer the book deal to someone else. And Gilbert said, certainly, as long as they can write. Beth gave the job to Claudia Riley. So, in another unpredictable turn of the road, the season of misdirection led to graduate school in Illinois that led Beth to being inspired to write by Claudia, now in turn led to Claudia – Getting her first professional writing job from Beth And now my mind comes back to the tachyon The little particle that may or may not be real That is invisible to us all That travels faster than the speed of light So it arrives before it departs Perhaps the tachyon is the scientific accounting For what we call destiny and the secret that Joseph tried to reveal to his departing brothers.
0: May you grow up to be righteous. May you grow up to be true. May you always know the truth and see the light surrounding you. May you always be courageous. Stand up right and be strong And may you stay Forever young That was Don't Argue with the Road, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. You know, Stephen, uh, we were talking on our uh, podcast at SlashFilm.com, the slash Filmcast, about Clash of the Titans. The mm-hmm. reason I bring this up is because I'm thinking about how awesome the Topolowski Files is and how how much it has sort of affected me and how how much of a joy it's been to listen to episodes repeatedly on my iPod and everything. Uh, And in the movie Clash of the Titans, uh, the reason why Zeus and Apollo and all the other gods do what they do is because they subsist on the prayers of humans. And that kind of justifies all the horrible things they do during the course of that film, which, by the way, is a a bad film and I would recommend you not go see it. But that... (laughs) That being said, that being said, that is the case, you know. And I was thinking, you know, hey, that's kind of similar to the Tepelaski files in a way. We don't need your prayers, but what we do need is for you to help spread the word about the Tepelaski files through whatever means possible, whether it be writing about it, leaving a review on iTunes, or just telling your friends. Because uh, I mean, Stephen, we were just talking about how like we do this for free, you know, and right. um, and I think people have this assumption that if uh, that they If they enjoy the podcast, that it will just keep happening without them having to do anything, uh, and you don 't have to do anything but it really helps if you help spread the word because uh, um the the likelihood that we 'll be able to keep doing this uh is increased if uh we have a solid listener
1: base what do you think about that's that that 's true Kevin? You, you know it's uh yeah you, you know that 's true it, it 's a lot of work to to do the podcast, and it 's very rewarding. When there are people listening, so so when there are people actually that hear it and enjoy it, and and you know we all appreciate that that that's good. So so I guess what I would say is in this period of time, you know that we're going to be off dark the air. off here. We're going dark off. We're going dark. I'm going to be riding away, but it would be nice for everybody to tell your friends to catch up on season one. They'll still be able to get that on iTunes, right? They will. Yes. Season one. Every and episode, yep. tell everybody to listen up for season two, because I've already written the first two stories for season two, and I'm working on the third, and it would be nice to have you around.
0: Excellent. So tell your friends, uh, write about it, blog about it, write a review on iTunes, whatever you can to help spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. It will help keep us on the air. All that being said, Stephen, let me ask you, where can people contact you on the Internet this week?
1: Contact me at steventoboloski at gmail.com. I love the emails. They're very potent, powerful, and funny. Uh, That would be S-T-E-P-H-E-N, T -T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. And also uh, at twitter.com slash And now I'm on Facebook, too. Right, David? That's right. You can become a fan of Stephen
0: Tobolowski if you're like, oh man, this, this Twitter thing, this Gmail thing, this email thing is too newfangled for me. You just want to stick with the Facebook, go to facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski. Again, that's facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski and you'll be able to become a fan, and uh, we'll start putting some updates there as soon as we get our act together. <laughs> um, all that being said, you can find me at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave chen S-K-Y. You can also email me at slash filmcast at gmail.com. A couple of other notes before we head off for season one of The Tobolsky Files. Uh, you can find your emails and letters and stories reproduced uh, with all personal identifying information removed at tobolowsky.tumblr.com. That's Tobolasky.tumblr.com. And if you're jonesing For some more Stephen Tobolowsky during this break, you just, you listen to every episode multiple times and you're just like, I need to have more Stephen Tobolowsky stories in my life. What can people do, Stephen? What are they going to do? What are they going to do?
1: Well, there is, there is the movie (laughs) that started it all that was kind of done with no script, no rehearsal, no preparation, no permits. Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. And you can find that at, what, stbpmovie.com? I don't know why you're asking me, but yes, that's the case. That, (laughs) amazon.com? Yep. And you could rent it at Netflix.
0: There you go. So if you really are jonesing for some more stories, check out Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. And finally, before we sign off for today, Stephen, I just want to thank you on behalf of all of the listeners we have out there in the United States and all over the world For sharing your life with us, it's been quite a journey, and uh, we've been very gratified and humbled to be able to join you for it.
1: Well, thank you, David Chinsky. I I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate it very much, and uh, I consider this the uh, first step on a very long and beautiful journey.
0: I hope that that is the case, sir. And so we will see you guys. uh, Well, there'll be a bonus episode soon, and we'll see you guys in May of 2010. Thanks for listening to the Tobolsky Files, guys. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.